place for your word and the opportunity to turn to it, something that is unchanging, it's always true, and all, every period of man's history, no matter what our technological changes or our advances in any field, we are the same at our core and, and uh, the deepest and the most important part of our life are uh, the, that which is impacted by your word. And we pray that you take this chapter that we're going to look at tonight. We claim the promise that it will not return void, but it will accomplish your purposes in the hearer and the reader. And we pray that every reason that this chapter is in the Bible, that you by your Holy Spirit would build that into our lives and our relationship with you and meet with us through your word tonight, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. John's Gospel, chapter 9. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We come now to John chapter 9. The context of John chapter 9 is John chapter 8, and it isn't uh, always as uh, tightly uh, related chapter by chapter as it is here. But we remember in chapter 8, the Jewish religious leaders brought the woman caught in the very act of adultery and, and suggested that in accordance with the law of Moses, she be stoned and uh, inviting Jesus to kind of oversee this entire uh, thing as he's teaching this crowd that is gathered to hear him teach. He declines to participate in any way. The only one qualified to throw a stone, being without sin, chose not to do that. He then followed that event as the woman then went her way. He says to her, uh, uh, your sins are forgiven you, go and sin no more. And he continues now to speak to the crowd uh, of himself as the light of the world. He continues his sermon that he was speaking to them in building upon what it is that they had just seen. And then he's interrupted by the Jewish religious leaders saying that we don't believe your testimony because it's only your testimony and we can't believe anything on the basis of the testimony of a single person. And then Jesus entered into a conversation with them, a back and forth with them in which the great issue that they had trouble with was his claim to be the son of God, to be divine as a result of that. And uh, as Jesus lays out, doesn't budge from his claims at all, lays down the biblical foundation for that claim and, uh, and leaves them so irate in their uh, inability to defeat him kind of publicly. And remember, it's a public discussion that is uh, going on here. The Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't like uh, to lose religious uh, discussions. Uh, in, in, certainly not in Jerusalem, and uh, so they took up stones to uh, stone him uh, because of his uh, ascribing deity or the fact that he is the Son of God to himself. And Jesus, his hour not yet being come, he then departed, as we're told there at the end of, of chapter uh, 9. So he continues his kind of discussion with them, and in all of this by... Uh, moving here into chapter 9, and, and he's not done with the Jewish religious leaders here. 
Uh, he's still going to give them uh, a little something to chew on because what he's going to do now is he has declared all of this uh, incredible priceless truth related to himself and now he is going to confirm that truth with accompanying signs and wonders and the healing of this man born blind. And so uh, he's not done with them. He's going to heal this man, but that man is then going to be brought before these same Jewish religious leaders. And now what do they do with Jesus's claims uh, in, in the light of his ability to perform these miracles and change a life as he does with this man born blind? Chapter 9, uh, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, they're leaving off of the area of the temple. Uh, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And so he's there, he's in the area of the temple, probably there in order to beg. In the ancient world, begging would be what would be required in order to put food in your belly every day. He's a full-grown man. Uh, and, and what better place to beg or ask for alms than in the area of the temple to try and uh, catch somebody with a, a soft heart uh, toward him. And as the disciples look at this uh, man born blind that is, is there in that area, they asked him saying, Rabbi, who has sinned this man or his parents that he uh, was born blind? And so they asked this question of Jesus, Whose fault is it? Whose sin is it? Is it his fault or his parents' fault that he was born blind? Now, it makes you wonder, it does for me, it makes you wonder how many of these kind of discussions um, this man born blind had to endure while begging for alms there in the area of the temple. So they see him, they see him in his condition, and he is merely uh, fodder for uh, theological uh, discussion here. The teaching of the day for the Jewish religious leaders was that uh, all of these kind of, of things, whether it would be uh, blindness, physical handicaps, or imperfections, that they were all the result of either the sin of the child in the womb before it was born, or the sin of the parents. And so all of these things were the result some way uh, of sin. And so the only two groups that they could uh, ascribe guilt to would be those two groups. And that was the theology of the day. The rabbis pointed to uh, Esau and Jacob wrestling with one another in the womb as being an evidence of, uh, of this possibility. It was also taught that these kind of handicaps could be uh, the result of uh, some sin that the parents had uh, committed. Now, there's hardly anything in the world uh, for anyone to do, let alone religious leaders who are claiming to represent God, than to declare uh, to parents and of parents who uh, have a child with special needs that is born uh, to them, that this is not just likely, uh, but if it is not your child's fault, uh, then it is your fault. There is some uh, sin uh, in your life. What sin have you committed now uh, to uh, bring this curse upon your child? And so the idea that 
Every time uh, something bad happens in our lives or hard happens in our lives, it has to be the result of some sin uh, in my life. Somehow God is uh, punishing me. And of course, this concept of God is prevalent in the world today and even uh, prevalent within the thoughts of, of, of many, many uh, Christians. Sometimes this, uh, this idea that God is punishing me. Sometimes when I have gone through the years to see someone in the hospital or family members of someone who's been in an accident or something and they're at the emergency room and someone will say, I don't know why this is happening uh, to me. I don't have any uh, sin in my life and I don't know why God is doing this to me. And we're prone to think that when bad things happen uh, in the world, when they happen most often, when, when they happen in our own lives, that we somehow think that... In, and take it back, uh, the disaster somehow as a result of sin uh, in our lives or because God is displeased with us in, in some way. It is important to realize, and I don't think it can be said often enough, that difficult things and uh, bad things and hard things and tragic things happen in this world for the simple reason that it is a fallen place. Uh, the creation, we are under the, the uh, burden of the curse of Adam and Eve's sin uh, from, uh, in that uh, ancient Garden of Eden. And it was that sin in the Garden of Eden that introduced sin uh, into the human condition, uh, suffering, disease, death, and everything else that, uh, that short of perfection that, that you can uh, think of. And so that's the reason. I can't tell you how many times I've heard discussions or I see people speaking for God or talking about these things on television and these discussions and why things are the way that they are. Why do these tragedies happen? And the answer is very, very simple. And that is it's a fallen world. Bad things happen here uh, because the world is fallen and we're not exempt from these things yet because we're not yet uh, in, in heaven. And so we have to be careful not to think that uh, every bad thing that happens in our life is of some kind of spiritual consequence or some failure in our lives. Most often the answer is just simply we live in a fallen world and this is just a part of that. And one day it'll all be done with for us as Christians, but presently uh, it, it isn't. And this is an, an important lesson for the type of person uh, like the, the Pharisees were and uh, Jewish religious leaders were and, um, and the type of Christian that always feels the need uh, to have some kind of a theological answer for everything in the world that is more uh, detailed or more minute than the answer that God has given us in his scriptures. It should have been enough for them to say it's a fallen world and difficult things happen here and, and that's all we know about it. But no, they have to impugn the child, they have to impugn the parents in order to try and solve a mystery that God does not have any interest in them trying to solve. And they lack the wisdom uh, to be able to do that. Uh, Job's comforters did the same thing. And again, there's this kind of Christian that doesn't like not one loose end 
in their Christianity. Uh, They don't like one bit of mystery in a relationship with God. They won't commit any mystery to God uh, in, in their walk with God and understanding of Him. They will fill in the blanks, even if those blanks are wrong. And even if those, those, uh, those answers that they, they fill in do great harm to the reputation of the Lord and great harm to people. It's, the revelation that we have is, is enough. And, and what a, a terrible thing. Here is this man born blind uh, from his mother's womb and, and, and then this endless sea of discussions talking about what the rabbis and the Jewish religious leaders taught related to him and related to his parents. Jesus then answered as they posed the question to him, and you notice they posed it as which one? It was an either or. There were, this was what they had been raised in, This was a theological understanding, and so uh, there couldn't be another answer. We know that it's either his parents or it's him. Would you tell us concerning this individual uh, which one of the two uh, groups is, is, uh, is guilty here? Jesus answered said and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So he blows up the entire attempt to... Uh, speak and, and, and how many people were damaged or damaged even today by this kind of an idea about God and, 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 and difficult and bad things that happen in life. But Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, uh, I am the light of the world. And so he tells them it's not a result of the sin of this man or his parents. And he told him that the proper way to view this man's uh, blindness, uh, this man's fallenness, was to view it as an opportunity for God's power to be revealed in him, which Jesus knew was just about to happen in his life as he was about to heal him of, of this blindness and, uh, and the use of the healing of this blindness to reveal himself uh, as the Son of God to the world. And so God didn't cause his blindness, uh, but he will work it together for good for uh, his purposes. And so uh, it, 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 this is what he's going to do. Well, we look at this and we say, okay, here's an account in chapter 9 about Jesus healing a man who was born blind from his mother's womb. And we sit here today and we say, I wasn't born blind uh, from my mother's womb. And so what in the world application does this have uh, related to my life? The fact of the matter is that each of us, because of the fall, there in Genesis chapter 3, we've been born, not only born into this world spiritually dead, but that we have been born into this uh, world uh, physically, emotionally, uh, mentally broken. Uh, and, and damaged. We're less, far less than what uh, God intended. So we may be born into the world and have sight all of the days of our lives and have an area of our life because of our fallenness, not yet knowing Christ, 
And it is every bit as debilitating and, and limiting in our life as, as uh, physical uh, blindness was uh, to this man. And so to us it represents a handicap. And to God it represents in our lives an opportunity for him to work in such a way uh, and uh, that to be revealed to and through us uh, to the world as he does uh, that. And our salvation is, is how he accomplishes it. When he declares in verse 4 that he had the power to do the works of God, I must do the works of him uh, that is his father who sent me while it is, uh, it is day. Now in those days they didn't have electricity. Uh, so you worked when the sun was up. There was no electricity in the homes. There were no electricity in the factories or on the farms. Uh, the day represented the opportunity uh, to work. And it represented a limited amount of time in which a person might get work done. And night represented the end of that opportunity. And so uh, Jesus is saying night is coming. Uh, and he conveys the urgency. We remember he's in the final six months of his public ministry. He has a limited amount of time to continue to manifest himself as the Son of God uh, to the world. And this is going to be one of those ways that he does that in the healing uh, of, of this man uh, born blind. And so this recognition, time is finite. Time is valuable because it is finite. And uh, we need to redeem it uh, in, in the light of that. It is interesting not to have it be like a guilt gotcha kind of thing for us as Christians, but to realize that our lives are finite. Uh, they will end when they end, and we don't know when they will end. Uh, I don't know if we were to pose the question to uh, you, and you don't need to shout out, and please don't. But if, if the question was posed, would you like to know how long you're going to live? Uh, or the day that you're going to die, or would you rather have that come as a mystery? I'll take that as a mystery, thank you very much. Because it'd be all I could think about until, you know, April 4th, 2000-whatever uh, came uh, around. And so other people are interested in, in knowing those kind of, uh, of, of details related to things. The Apostle Paul, when he calls on us to redeem the time, uh, he's content in, in, to say, God, the length of my life is your problem. Uh, I'm going to focus on what is my responsibility, and that is I have limited time to serve you, and I'm going to redeem that time. And so this is true really of, of all of us. And then in, in verse 5, uh, significantly, especially in the hearing of the blind man, Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. So remember this blind man, he's heard a lot of conversations from his post, wherever he posted himself in that temple, maybe moved around. And uh, when you don't have sight, you pick up things pretty good with your ears. And people haven't blown out their ears with iPods or whatever things in those days. So they could really, you know, listening to things. So he's listening to uh, Jesus declare himself to be the light of the world. And maybe he's thinking, well, that's a new one. I've heard a lot of things said standing in front of me in these discussions, but I've never heard anybody declare themselves to be uh, the light of the world. I mean, it's one thing to say something like that, 
And a good way to uh, back it up would, bring, would be to bring light to my blind world here. And then Jesus, as a, a public demonstration of his claim, proceeded to uh, give sight to the man born blind. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he made kind of a clay uh, mixture with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man uh, with the clay. Anointed is... Uh, uh, a nice word for what was happening there, but that's exactly what it was that was, was going on. Puts that uh, on, on the man's eyes. Then he gave him instruction, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated uh, sent. And he went, washed, and came back seeing. Now this required some considerable faith on the part of this blind man. He has never met Jesus before. He doesn't know who he is, as the passage is going to make uh, very, very clear uh, to us. It took some real faith for him to make his way down from that temple a fair distance to the south, to the pool of Siloam, where you had running water there, a water supply for Jerusalem, and to wash his eyes off exactly as Jesus had called him to do. So he doesn't know, well, is this a joke? He's put this on my eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam, and as I start to make my way to the pool of Siloam, will they all start laughing and run down a different alley than the one that I'm going on? I mean, this is commendable in him. It certainly speaks to the fact that he was desperate to be healed of this blindness of this consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, that he's willing to take this chance, willing to bet on the fact that maybe this will be the thing that will change my life, the only life I've ever known uh, from my uh, birth. And so he's willing to look foolish uh, in the estimation of the world, maybe even in his own mind, to obey that uh, that command of Jesus and somehow confident that this is going to work, uh, work out well. And so we're told, and, and it's so beautiful, the end of verse 17. So he, he was told, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And we're going to see this repeated in the passage. So he went, washed, and came back seeing. The power wasn't in uh, the clay or the spittle or the water of the pool of Siloam. The reason this was powerful is because God chose this as the way to heal his blindness. That's what made it powerful. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. And you look at the gospel, it is every bit as simple as that. Believe and receive. And then as we go and as we do that, the reason that that produces a salvation in our lives, trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and then uh, receiving that forgiveness, becoming a new creation, the reason that that is effectual in our life is because it's the way that God has chosen to save us from the consequence of our sins as a, re as a result of the fall uh, of, of Adam 
uh, and Eve. And so there at the end of verse 7, I mean, you just, if you have any kind of a mind of an artist at all, I mean, you can picture this in your mind. He puts this, the, gets the, the, the clay off of his eyes, and for the first time in his life, uh, he can see what he's been hearing all around him for all of these, uh, these uh, years. And so the rest of the passage, we really don't need to go through it because uh, he lived happily ever after and life was a breeze that, uh, all, uh, uh, going from uh, there. Everybody rejoiced. Everybody was thrilled at this change in his life. Well, therefore, the, I mean, the change was so dramatic that uh, the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind they said to themselves when they saw him, is this, not, uh, is this not he who sat and begged? And so he, his life has changed in a way that's visible, that they can, rec- it's such a change that he's almost unrecognizable. That, that's what a spiritual birth will do too. And, and some said, well, yes, it is. That's, that's him. Others said, well, it, you know, it looks like him. And then he said, uh, I am he. So he brings it. He's a man of few words. And, and he lets them know, no, I'm, I'm that guy. And therefore they said to him, and of course this would be the question that would rise immediately in their minds. And they asked him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and he said, a man called Jesus. He begins, there's going to be a progression here now in terms of how he comes to understand Jesus in his life. And he begins here by describing Jesus as a man. Later, he's going to describe him as a prophet, one who speaks for God and represents God. And prophets were miracle workers in the Old Testament. And then ultimately, and Jesus won't stop working in his life until he uh, comes to the place where Jesus is Lord of his life at the end of the chapter. But here at the beginning, he, he doesn't know uh, uh, anything about Jesus except Jesus has changed his life here. And a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And then here it is. So I went and washed and I received uh, sight. And so uh, he lays this out to them. And then they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. I was blind when all of this happened. I don't know where he went. I don't know who he is. I couldn't pick him out for you uh, in, in a crowd. And, uh, and so uh, they want to know more about who is this Jesus that's done this miracle, that's changed your life uh, in this way. And then doubtless without incredible excitement, uh, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. So Jesus, you know, um, they talk about multitasking and uh, the debate is open on that. Some of the science says that multitasking is, um, it simply isn't true. Uh, We can really only do one thing at a time in terms of our concentration and you can't juggle all of those things. Something plays a second fiddle then to uh, the, the supreme thing. But God can do a lot of things all at once. So he's, he's dealing with this man, going to bring him to salvation. 
and changed his life, but this is also about these, these religious leaders too. So they brought him to the Pharisees. They want them to know, you got a guy here in Jerusalem uh, who is able to heal people that have, have been blind from their mother's womb and, and expecting them to be excited about this and, and then wanting to know uh, what it is about, uh, what they thought about uh, this miracle that had occurred. Now, uh, here's the bummer right here, verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Jesus did an awful lot of that. It's almost like he said, it's the Sabbath. What am I going to do today in terms of... He never violated, of course he couldn't, uh, the law of Moses related to the Sabbath. But what he, was, what he had no interest in observing was the wrong-headed interpretations of the Jewish religious leaders about what was lawful and unlawful uh, to do on the day, uh, on the Sabbath day. And so he did this on the Sabbath day, knowing that this would make all of this come to the attention of the Jewish religious leaders uh, even more than if it had been done on another day of the week, uh, even more impossible for them to ignore his claims concerning himself now uh, verified in this miracle. And then the Pharisees, they also asked him again uh, uh, how uh, he received his sight. And so tell us exactly this was what the religious leaders did. They found out the facts and then they're going to weigh it by the word of God. And uh, so he said to them, uh, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I uh, see. So he, he gave me a command, I obeyed it, and this miracle occurred uh, in my life. And then some of the Pharisees said, this man does not, is, uh, uh, is not from God, speaking of Jesus, because he does not keep the Sabbath, or rather our interpretations of it. Others said among the Pharisees, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among the Pharisees. Remember Nicodemus came to faith in Jesus Christ, John chapter 3, and uh, somewhat time either that night or afterwards, and a number of uh, uh, Pharisees were convinced of Jesus' claims based upon uh, his miracles. And so the division occurred, and so uh, they said to the blind man again, uh, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? What's your assessment uh, of him? And he said, he is a prophet. So now he's gone from seeing him merely as a man to now being, uh, he is a prophet. His assessment, his esteem of Jesus is rising as a result of that. Again, prophets were great miracle workers so often in the Old Testament. And one who speaks for God, he said, this guy is, that's my assessment uh, of him. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been uh, born blind and ref, uh, received his sight and until they called uh, the parents of him who had received his sight. And so uh, this didn't uh, fit their narrative uh, related to Sabbath law, didn't fit their narrative related to uh, Jesus. And so uh, they're going to keep 
uh, digging for facts until, uh, until they can find a loophole in this thing uh, because they're convinced uh, Jesus, uh, 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 they didn't like the implications of what it is that Jesus is forcing them to face here. And so they said, let's call the parents, let's confirm, again, they're, they're fact confirmers, let's confirm the fact that he was actually uh, born blind and, uh, and, uh, and who better to, to uh, confirm that than his parents. And so they asked the parents, saying, is, uh, is this your son who uh, you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So they posed two questions to him. Is this your son in, in, in born blind? And then how in the world does he see today? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. And we know that he was born blind. That we can confirm for you. But by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, he's an adult. Ask him and he will speak uh, for himself. So she, the, the father and mother are, are beautiful in this. They basically tell the Pharisees, you got one eyewitness to what happened here. And so talk to your eyewitness. And our son is your only eyewitness to the facts of what happened in his, uh, his life. And let him speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was, that is, Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And the whole scene is, until you get to the end of it, it's just filled with so much um, heartbreak, really. Here, here are these parents. Their, their son is born blind. They carry the stigma all of their life that this is probably some sin in their life that has produced this blindness in their son. And even if they cease to believe that about themselves, the entire religious community believe that about them. And then one day, he receives his sight. This should have been the second most exciting day of their life next to his birth. And they're denied the excitement because the, the word related to the religious leaders is if anybody says anything about Jesus being the Messiah, you are out of the temple, you are out of, out of fellowship, you are out of the synagogue. And to be put out of the synagogue didn't just mean, okay, I'll go to Big Valley uh, or Shelter Cove or one of, you know, 150 other churches in town. When you got put out of the synagogue in any city, that was it. And, and you, were, you were no longer in good standing for work. Uh, they wouldn't sell you anything. You couldn't buy anything. It was, a, it, it was, it was it intended to devastate a person's life. This is the pressure they're under to uh, choose between their son and the miracle and rejoicing in it and, and, um, 
and not having uh, their life here uh, blow up as a result of this wonderful thing that has happened in his life because of this, uh, this uh, attitude of the Jewish religious leaders toward uh, Jesus. And so they again, uh, they called the man who was blind. So he's brought in. And they said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man uh, is a sinner. And so uh, they called him and said, all right, you can give God the glory. Don't give this man the glory. Give God the glory for it. And uh, we know that this man is a sinner. And so they lay out the only proposition concerning Jesus that's acceptable to them. Uh, You cannot leave this place and give glory to this Jesus for this this, uh, uh, miracle uh, and, and elevate him above a sinner because of his claims concerning himself and his uh, attitude toward the Sabbath. And so this is the middle ground. You can get out of here. Your parents can get out of here. You can work both sides of the things. You continue to, to have your sight and still be in good standing with uh, the Jewish religious Uh, establishment. And so they're really exerting pressure on him here uh, in this intimidation here to change his his story uh, before uh, before all of these neighbors and, and family members that are around. And he doesn't budge. It's beautiful. He answered and he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know is that though I was blind, now I see. All I know is he did something in me that only he could do in me. And and so he, he sticks with the fact that this guy has to be who he says he is by virtue of this miracle. There is not one uh, example in the entirety of the Old Testament of someone being born blind, uh, being healed of that blindness. This is unprecedented, this miracle that God is accomplishing uh, in, in his, his life. And he's not moving. It's like, listen, I sat at those gates in the temple. You had decades to change my life. You had decades to do anything and everything you could do to change my life in the way that this man has, and you didn't do it, and you couldn't do it, and I'm not budging from, if you're going to force me to choose between you and the guy that did this, I go with the guy that did this. I go with the guy that changed my life in a way that no one else can do, uh, but God himself. And then they said to him again, well, uh, what did he say to you? Now they want to, they wonder, what was the dialogue? And and how did he open your eyes? And so this is what, the third or fourth time, he answered them and said, I told you already, and you did not listen. You are not interested in the facts here. Why do you want me to tell you it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? Oh, boy. 
This guy just poked him right in the eye. That also is quite a word, isn't it? It also, what it means is that he has become, uh, by virtue of this miracle, he has decided to become Jesus' disciple, follower, on the level that he can understand it at the moment. But But he's making a choice. If it's a choice between you and me uh, and him, that's an easy choice. I'm his disciple. Are you continuing to probe me for facts in order that you might become a disciple uh, as well? Or uh, is this just a dishonest hearing uh, where no one is really interested in the truth about him? And so they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are uh, Moses' disciple. And so they revile him. Once you run out of arguments, now you resort to reviling. And you always know the argument on on the the, uh, rational, intellectual, uh, logical level has been lost when somebody starts to move into personal attack and, and reviling. And so they, they did, and they, they knew. They have, they have lost, they've tried every way uh, to, to minimize Jesus in this. And then when he makes this claim, uh, they reviled him, said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. And that's what they could, uh, uh, did, is they made it a dichotomy, a choice between one of two things, is, is how they present it. You are either a disciple of Moses or you are a disciple of this man, but you can't be a disciple of both, which is folly because the law and the prophets all speak of Jesus. There is no uh, conflict between Jesus and the law of Moses, but they make one there and they make those under their influence uh, feel that Uh, To become a disciple of Jesus means you're no longer a disciple of Moses. You're no longer a a disciple or respect the law of Moses. And and that uh, forcing that dichotomy on people is still related to Jesus is very prevalent in Jewish religious environments today. That to choose Jesus is to cease to be a disciple of Moses. And it's a very, very powerful means of of keeping people from putting their faith in in Jesus. When you can, it's not a choice, uh, you can have, be a disciple of uh, both and we're intended to be. We know what God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, they can't even... Uh, uh, speak Jesus' name, uh, we don't know uh, where it is that, uh, that he is uh, from. And the man answered and uh, said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing uh, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he's opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, uh, then God hears him. And since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone uh, opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do uh, nothing. And so uh, he, he confronts them here and, uh, and they don't have a, 
a, uh, a, a satisfactory or a logical explanation for, uh, for the miracle. He, uh, uh, this grilling is going on and his, uh, his, uh, is they, they speak to him here and, and he's saying, in, in, in essence, how in the world can, can you say, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from and reject him? How can you know so little about a person that you don't even know where he's from and yet you're working here uh, to uh, reject him? And so they'd already admitted their, their ignorance uh, to him and, and this is a, a, a marvel. And, it, and the idea that he's thinking is, wouldn't this miracle make you investigate him so that you would at least know where he's from? And they're not troubled by the fact that they don't know anything about him. They don't want to know anything about him because of the implications of the miracle to his claims concerning uh, himself. Well, here again, uh, when you, uh, the, uh, again, now they're losing a theolo- uh, publicly, losing a theological discussion to a man born blind who's received his sight that day and had spent his entire uh, life uh, begging uh, to, to, uh, to survive. And, uh, and again, this is a public uh, loss. All of his neighbors are there and his mom and dad are there. And so they answered and said to him, you are completely born in sins. Are you teaching us? We're the experts. You're no expert. And they go back to their uh, wrong-headed teaching that to be born blind or with any kind of a limitation uh, uh, was an indication that, uh, that uh, he, there, there was sin in his life and saying, look at us, we're not blind, we can move, we can walk, we can do these kind of things, and you're going to teach us about uh, these things. And then they uh, cast him out. So this is ugly, ugly uh, arrogance and uh, pride. So they cast him out, certainly out of the area of the temple, and, uh, and most likely excommunicated him as well. And for what reason? Uh, he had been healed of his blindness. He had had his life changed by uh, Jesus. So he's rejected by the religious establishment. Uh, just a show of hands, if you'd if you be kind enough to accommodate me on it. How many of you became saved and you had to leave a religious institution for that to happen? Would you just raise your hands in your life for that to happen in your life? Okay. Yeah, a lot of people, that's the case where it it, it occurs. And and so now here, he's being pushed out of that that religious system. And when Jesus saves us and he changes us, especially if we come from a religious tradition, that has a low view of Christ or a low view of, uh, of, of the gospel, uh, then you become a threat to the system. And uh, because Jesus has done in your life what uh, uh, they could not do, and thus they're either going to join you in following Jesus or they're going to get you out uh, by one means or 
uh, another. And so this is as old as the hills, and it goes on uh, even today, where many, many people in the world... Now, we live in a country where we have a uh, a Judeo-Christian, a Bible foundation for the nation that we live in. But most of the rest of the world that is religious... Uh, people will need to leave a religious uh, institution or system in order to walk with Christ and to follow him. And and as a result of his miracle of of having them born again, and uh, it will mean this kind of, uh, of rejection in their lives. Jesus then heard that they had cast him out And when he had found him, this man, so he seeks the man, and then he finds the man, and and Jesus is not going to leave him thinking that he's merely a man or merely a prophet. He's going to close the deal here and let him know what all of this really signifies. And uh, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And uh, the man answered and said, uh, who is he, Lord, and, uh, 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 that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, uh, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. I am uh, the Son of God. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And so we go from man to prophet to Lord to I believe in the spiritual birth that occurs in that. And he worshiped him. Now, no Jew, whether born blind or a beggar at the temple, no Jew would ever worship, not then, not now, worship a mere man. So not only is his words indicate what it is that he believes about Jesus, but his actions do as well. He recognizes him uh, as the son uh, of God in his worship of him. And then Jesus declared, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made uh, blind and uh, and, and so uh, the, uh, some of the Pharisees listened to this uh, who were with him when he said these words. And they said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin uh, remains. And so uh, Jesus gives a strong warning here as it closes out to the Jewish religious leaders. Again, this was about uh, this man's salvation, a changed life, but it was also about still trying to reach these Jewish religious leaders with the truth uh, about uh, Jesus. And so his warning to them very, very strong one because of their refusal to accept what were the clear facts concerning uh, Jesus. And uh, Jesus declared he didn't come into the world primarily to judge, but, but to save. But if a person will not allow the facts of Jesus's life and of his teaching to lead them to the logical conclusion Uh, of who and and what he is, that they should put their trust in him as Savior, then that person judges themselves. Uh, uh, And what a person does with Jesus is never a bad reflection upon Jesus, but always a reflection 
supremely upon the person that makes the, the decision. And so uh, to reject Jesus here is essentially on the part of the Jewish religious leaders to declare that I would rather live spiritually blind than to trust in you for the claims that you make concerning yourself. And so, uh, such a man, as Jesus says, is spiritually blind, and they will never, ever, ever see the spiritual dimension that Jesus opens up to us when He uh, heals us and uh, takes care of our spiritual blindness when we admit our blindness and turn to Christ for uh, salvation. And so, the person that rejects Jesus in the face of this kind of evidence is deserving of the judgment that their sin uh, deserves, just like uh, everyone else. And so, these folks knew way too much about Jesus at this point to be rejecting Him on, on any level. And even if you have never, ever read one other passage in the Bible except being here and looking at John's Gospel, chapter 9, you, know now, you now know way too much about Jesus to ever reject Him for His claims to be the Son of God and the Savior uh, of the world. And so Jesus is saying it's better uh, to be physically blind and to be spiritually sighted than to be, uh, uh, than to be physically sighted and spiritually uh, blind. There's the old saying that, uh, that there's none who are so blind as those who will not see. And that's exactly what Jesus is in the middle of here and warning them uh, uh, about. If you were blind, you would have no sin. Uh, you, they knew enough spiritually to, to conclude who Jesus was, and if they didn't know uh, anything, they would have been less uh, responsible for it. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. And so, knowing again what they did about Jesus, considering themselves to be experts, they were responsible for their unbelief, and uh, Jesus makes it clear to them uh, that that uh, was the case. And so we'll stop there tonight. And, and I'll ask the worship team to come forward. I'd like them to close us in one meditation song before we close in a, a, a final uh, song here. There are all of the uh, uh, proofs to Jesus' deity and the fact that he's the Son of God um, that, that Jesus taught them in, in chapter 8 there. And, uh, and then the second great evidence that he gave to these Jewish religious leaders and to the world uh, is what we see in chapter 9, and that is 2,000 years of, in human history of just this continual flow of thousands and millions of changed lives. Lives who have been damaged and broken because of the fall, Jesus coming into that life and making us into something, a new creation, into something, a quality of life we would never otherwise uh, know. And, and uh, wonderful to realize that that is our, our portion as well. It's Thanksgiving season, and I don't know what Thanksgiving is like for you, and I wouldn't... Um, 
I wouldn't accuse you of anything, but sometimes in our culture, it's a short week at work, and so everybody's hustling to get all these things done, and then they got to get to the, over the store, and are there any turkeys left, and how much? $600 for a turkey? What? You know, and all these things that we're thinking about, and all, and you can, it, it can be not until you're on the other side of Thanksgiving that we remember to be thankful. And so tonight, I just wanted to close this in a, in a worship song that just allows us a moment, the privacy of our own heart. Every testimony is the same. This man's just like ours. What I was before Jesus came into my life, how I met him, and what my life has been since. And that's the testimony. That's our salvation story. And to just stop tonight... Remember our salvation story. Remember that that blind man would have remained blind somewhere on that temple mount for the rest of his life if he had not uh, encountered Jesus and obeyed him. And to stop and think about what you and I would still be, and even to a worse degree, in our lives if we didn't have this account of what we once were, our encounter with Jesus, and then the changed life, the quality of life that has ensued. And so let's give him thanks tonight uh, before we close. And uh, Jared, if you'd lead us.